1 Corinthians 15. The, we're, we walk through books of the Bible in this church. So if you have come here today, this just happens to be where we are in 1 Corinthians. The reason that I do not teach or preach standalone sermons is because the context of the books of the Bible uh, tells us everything we need to know about the substance of the Scriptures. And so standalone sermons that do not link to the other portions around them uh, are not as helpful for you as they may at first appear to be. And so you have to read 1 Corinthians all the way through to get to the place where we are today. Uh, And so if you are with us for the first time, uh, I will do my best to fill in where we are. Last Sunday, we studied the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Apostle Paul makes this this massive declaration. And he says not only that the resurrection is a historical fact, but that the entire gospel hinges on that fact. And so he says that there are some people in Corinth who say there's no such thing as a resurrection. And that concerns the Apostle Paul immensely. And so he, he lays out these two scenarios And that's what we're about to read. The first few verses is one scenario. What happens if there's no such thing as a resurrection? The second scenario is there really is a resurrection. It's true. Here's the implications. So we pick up at chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. And remember that we believe that this is God's word written. It's the only infallible rule for faith and practice. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him. That is the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Uh, God, I'm a a 
wretched, sinful, crooked stick. I stand to open your word and I acknowledge that in every way I do not have in myself anything that deserves the right to do this. Moreover, unless your spirit helps us, I am not sufficient. And so we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit as we study your word to open your word to us and give your people ears that they might hear what your spirit says to the church. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine the headline. USA Today, front cover. Archaeologists discover the remains of Jesus. What's your first thought? If you're like me, your first thought is impossible. It's another irresponsible work of phony science. Oh, sure, they began with the hope of coming to that conclusion, and they pieced together enough garbage to call it a discovery, and then they put it as a headline. So then imagine you pick up a copy of the paper and you begin to read the evidence. And they've matched the DNA with absolute certainty. There's no question that the tomb that we have uncovered contains the body of the man that was known as Jesus of Nazareth. What would that discovery do to your heart? How would your life suddenly be different? A sentimental Christian might want to stand back and go, well, you know, I mean, I mean, being a Christian's given me a really good life, and I have a moral compass. I'm, I'm generally happy. I've been able to raise my children as good citizens. But if you could embrace that sentimental concept about the truth of Jesus, a Jesus who never rose from the dead, whose body could still sit in the grave, then I want to encourage you never to begin to think about the implications. I want you to dwell at that sentimental level, and I would encourage you to stay there. Wasn't it nice to have a short-term peace? I had, I had feelings of purpose for a little while. I had a community of friends in my church, a place that I felt like I belonged. It made me feel good for a little bit. It's funny because Paul is not really sentimental at all. Not even in the least. He says the opposite. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In which case, my whole life and yours suddenly becomes meaningless and pitiful. And then what you hope to be delivered from in the realm of your sins is utterly impossible. You can't be delivered from your sins. What hope do you have in the end that the wrath of God would not just simply crush you like an ant? Last week we learned that Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead. Paul testified, there's 500 witnesses that you could go talk to right now as he writes the letter. And he says, they will all tell you that they saw the bodily resurrected Jesus walking around. It was a really astounding claim. An astounding claim to make because... He was saying, test me in this. Go and see. Now, he's made that point. 
And yet the point that he goes on to make here is that Christ arose, therefore he is king. And so our two points serve really as opposing alternatives this morning. We either have a pitiful existence, that is, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, these are the implications. Or we have Jesus reigns. If Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead, then everything else is different. And so let's start where Paul does in the text. It's a pitiful existence, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Uh, Why does he have to say that in a Christian church? I mean, why would anyone call themselves a Christian and yet not believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Could it be that sometimes our views of the afterlife are more influenced by the culture around us than by the Word of God? Well, here's what that looked like in Corinth. Greeks believed that to get rid of the body was to finally be free of all the snares and all of the consuming passions and all of the trappings that so evidently controlled them in this life. And then you would get to spend the rest of your life floating around like a vapor. You would somehow be deep in thought and very satisfied with your feelings. But you would be free of that body. Sometimes our views of the afterlife are way more influenced than the, by the culture around us than they are by the Word of God. Uh, you also have neighbors, friends, co-workers, classmates who label themselves as Christian. But some of them would deny the, the, the resurrection of Jesus himself. They would deny that supernatural occurrence. Moreover, there's a lot of Christians who believe in a bodily resurrection, but, but still have these funny views about the afterlife. If your views of the afterlife include wings on your back and a halo and jumping from cloud to cloud, learning to play the harp suddenly, then your views of the afterlife are far more tainted by the culture than God's word. Ideas, philosophies, they have consequences. The Bible breaks into our foolish misunderstanding with what scholars call this, this extraordinary logic. It begins in verse 12, it runs through verse 29, and this is Paul's appeal. So what I've done in the, in the bulletin is I've taken the text And I've printed the bullet points to summarize his logical flow of thought. Verse 11 tells us that a lot of people in Corinth actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead. So it wasn't a question that Jesus rose from the dead. It was a question that Jesus would raise everyone else from the dead. Oh, sure. God could do some supernatural things with Jesus. But he's not going to do that with everyone else. Paul says, well, then the net effect is there is no such thing as a resurrection. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. He repeats the exact same thing in verse 16. You either believe in the doctrine of the resurrection or you don't. And as we saw last week, the fact that God can and did raise Jesus from the dead is literally the hinge upon which everything in the gospel hangs. If God can't or won't 
raise from the dead those who trust in Christ, then he couldn't or he wouldn't raise Jesus either. And then he goes on to list several implications of that philosophy. If there's no such thing as the resurrection of the dead, verse 13 and 16, then Christ wasn't raised. Secondly, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised and your faith is meaningless. Everything you believe in is meaningless. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. The word vain means empty. And these words in this particular sentence are structured in such a way that all the arrows of the text are pointing to this word empty so that it sits and hangs in front of your face. I want to imagine that you go to buy a can of paint at the paint store. You go pick out your color. They take it behind the counter. They mix it up for you. They bring it back to you. You take it home. You grab your paintbrush and your roller. You lay out your drop cloth. You get your rag to cover all your mistakes. And you open the can and it's empty. And suddenly it hardly matters how pretty this can is. It's not going to be all that useful as a stepping stool. The can is useless. And your money is wasted. Paul says, if if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is as empty as that can. It is worth nothing. More than that, the substance of everything we preach is also empty. So one writer says, if the gospel is a sham, then so is the faith that it produces. So friends, there, there is no way for unbelievers to look at believers and say, if there is no resurrection... They're still really sweet people. You'd have to say as an unbeliever, if there is no resurrection, these people are fools. They're crazy. If there's no resurrection from the dead, Jesus wasn't raised. If Jesus wasn't raised, your faith is empty. Moreover, if Jesus wasn't raised, there is no such thing as truth. Verse 15. We're even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he, was, that he raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. As, as believers, friends, we are people who are, who are supposedly rooted in the book. And we're grounded in the fact that the Bible is true. That it is the only authority upon which we stand. And if you've ever seen a courtroom scene in a play or a movie or in real life, historically, people would take their hand and they would place it on the Bible. And a question would be asked similar to this. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. The question is intended to constrain the person to be a truth teller. As this word is the truth. But more than that, to put your hand on the Bible and to make a swear like that and to lie is to implicate God. What I mean is this, he must either bring you under his wrath for lying or he would be implicated in the lie. 
Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we all lied. And our lie implicates God because we're saying that God did this and said this. And if God is implicated in a lie, then the rest of the Bible is really also untrue. And if the Bible comes under suspicion, then your opinion and my opinion are equal. It's just conjecture. And nobody really knows anything, and here we are. In a world that says that you can have your truth and I can have mine. Oh, it's true for me. It may not be true for you. In which case, we would have a, a world in which there is no such thing as what Francis Schaeffer called true truth. And that means you're stuck in your sins. Take a look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I actually appreciate Paul's intellectual honesty. I mean, he's willing to parse the implications of this Corinthian error all the way to the end, even if it leads to these final two points. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then you personally are still stuck in your sins, meaning that your sins are still counted against you. And everyone who ever died before you, supposedly believing in this dead Jesus, has perished. It does you no good to believe in a Jesus who is a dead man. His death is only effectual if he is God. And being God, he likewise rose from the grave. Because only then could his righteousness be applied to us by faith. The point is this, if you're resting in a guy who was a good teacher of morality, you really do not need him to rise from the dead. And then, your sins are really counted against you because most of the time, you don't even do what he said anyway. Which makes you a hypocrite. More than that, do you really want to put your faith in A mere man who said silly things, like I am bread, I am a gate, I am resurrection and life, I am a vine. You don't want to put your faith in him, you want to say he's crazy. That would be the implication if Jesus did not rise from the dead. And of course, if Jesus didn't rise, the dead in Christ are are gone. If Christ has not been raised, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. See, verse 18 is continuing the thought of verse 17. Those who already died trusting in Christ, who did not rise from the dead, they perished. Along with the rest of humanity, because they all deserve to suffer for their sins. Paul is not sentimental at all. He's logical. And if certain facts are not true, Paul says, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. It's a pitiful existence. How so? Because a sincere follower of Christ lays down his or her entire life under subjection to the reign of Jesus. He is king for them. But if he did not rise then he is not king. 
and you lived your life based on a sham. Which brings me to an application. You live your life in such a subjection to the king that if he really didn't rise, then you really have wasted your life. Now that seems crazy to ask. But the Bible says that the certainty of God's future promises is the very thing which motivates us as believers to sacrifice the temporal for the sake of the eternal. If Christ is raised, then you live with your eyes so fixed on the certainty of the resurrection that you would make choices now not to grab up the things of this world, not to be consumed by the things of the world, because rather you would choose the things which are eternal. And you would say, I want that. And I'll forego this. It's actually a call to live opposite from the man named Esau. Genesis chapter 25, he he traded his birthright, that which he had coming to him, for a bowl of lentil soup. Some of the Christians in Corinth, I think, failed to think through the implications of of a resurrected Messiah. And so Paul says, do not follow them. Do not adorn a Christianity that is fine, whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. That's a wasted life. Or does your faith desperately require Jesus to be raised from the dead? If that's the faith that you carry, Paul says, take comfort. He did rise. And your life is not wasted. If there's no such thing as a resurrection, that's a pitiful existence. But if he rose, then Jesus reigns. The Bible says Christ arose, therefore he is king. And so the next eight verses provide an incredible comfort for us. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then first your resurrection is guaranteed. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so he's turning from all of those if, hypothetical statements in the first part of the passage. And then he states with utter confidence, it is not so Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, your resurrection is guaranteed. How does he communicate it? By connecting it with an Old Testament reference. It comes from Leviticus chapter 23. This concept of first fruits. God commanded His people in the Old Testament to cut that first sheave of wheat. And God said, bring it to me as an act of faith. Trust me. In that way, the the first cutting, the first fruit is consecrated to God. So in some sense, it's a declaration saying this field and everything that grows in it, it belongs to God. But it's also an act of faith in another way. I cut this first fruit and I have to trust God to provide more. I give this first cutting to the Lord and believe in faith that he will cause it to grow back. And to feed my family. And so if you grow apples, you cut your first apples, you give them to the Lord as as an offering. 
This harvest comes from God. It belongs to God. And I trust Him to supply for me. That's what Paul can say. This Jesus and His resurrection is a kind of first fruits. He's the first to rise from the dead and never die again. It was God who did it. And by faith, he says, you can trust God who raised this first fruit as a harvest from the ground to likewise raise forth the rest of the harvest in the kingdom of Christ. By faith, you can trust God who raised Jesus to raise you. Christ arose, therefore your resurrection is guaranteed. But also, God's economy is certain. Take a look at verse 21. I I use the word economy to explain this is the way things work in God's kingdom. Okay, Verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, he, he elaborates on this concept in Romans chapter 5. This is the way God's economy functions. Now, now, biblical scholars call this concept federal headship. And you, whether you know it or not, already understand it. You are a citizen of the United States of America. But as a citizen of the United States of America, there is no one in this room, to my knowledge, who goes to foreign nations and negotiates contracts on behalf of this nation. We have ambassadors that do such a thing. And there are times when those ambassadors go and they serve as our federal head and they make arrangements representing me and I may or may not like the arrangement that they negotiated. I mean, sometimes they make deals I don't like. Deals I never voted for, I never would have chosen. That's actually the nature of federal headship. Paul says that's precisely the way it works in my relationship with the human race. In the Bible, that's precisely what happened with Adam. Adam chose to rebel against God in the Garden of Eden, and when he did, all of his posterity fell into sin. In a sense, he he arranged a deal that causes all of us to suffer. And yet you and I might say, I hate this arrangement. I hate that God operates this way. This is entirely unfair because all of us are born into sin. And so even if we do not commit additional sins, we're already condemned. What a horrible contract. Until you realize that God's economy also provides certainty. It is the very fact that God is willing to deal with us through a representative that makes possible a salvation that you otherwise could never have earned. If you could fall into sin through Adam, then God could save you through another representative. So the entire economy makes possible the Lord's own, God's own Son, Jesus, to be your Savior. And if that entire economy seems unfair, it's probably because you imagine yourself in a relationship like Adam had, wherein you perfectly and perpetually obeyed God forever. Given all the circumstances that Adam had, 
I would never have rebelled against God. I would never have brought sin into the world. I hate Adam. I can't believe he did this to us. First, it's a massive presumption. It's also impossible to prove. Second, the Bible teaches us that God receives the most glory. And you and I have the most certainty in our salvation when our relationship with God is contingent on His Son as our federal head. Because whether you think you could have obeyed God perfectly and perpetually, Adam says you couldn't. You wouldn't. You didn't. And so all mankind fell into Adam. But all mankind is not saved simply because Christ died and rose. The key phrase is verse 22. And the phrase is, in Christ. If you read the New Testament, that's Paul's shorthand way of saying, having faith in Christ being found in Christ, being united to Jesus by faith. Yes, all mankind fell in sin through Adam, and that didn't even require faith at all. What did it require? Genetics. It required being descended from Adam. But we are not descended from Christ. We must be adopted into Christ. Adopted under a new representative. That only happens through faith in Him. So what you're saying when you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ is you say, I want Him to represent me before Almighty God. Can you appreciate the beauty of God's economy? Surely you don't want a chance to wipe away his method of doing things and stand before God as an individual. I don't. I'm in trouble. Because Jesus reigns, your resurrection is guaranteed. God's economy provides certainty. Moreover, there's cosmic order. Take a look back at the text. All who come to faith in Christ shall be made alive, verse 23, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And so this is really very technical language. Paul takes it from the military to to describe a detachment of soldiers, and it is as if Jesus is the first detachment of soldiers, and he has already been made alive. He's that first wave that will be forever with God. And then at Jesus' return, New Testament believers began to call it the parousia, the, the coming of Jesus. And it is though He grabs us and ushers us in as the second detachment of those who belong to the King, God Himself. And comes that end. Jesus, having ridden into his creation, finally makes all things right. And on that second wave is Christ's people. You and I, who die in faith in Christ, our loved ones who died in faith in Christ are all ushered into the presence of God. In this passage, Paul is just talking to believers. There's other places in the New Testament where he talks about those who rejected Christ. But here, it's about comfort. 
He comes. You and I come. All His people come. And then the end. But it's not the eternal end. The Bible says this is the end of the fallen world. It's the culmination of everything that God ever designed. So here's the imagery of verse 24. The Lord, having been raised from the dead, raises His people from the dead, gathers them up in His arms, and while He holds them, He crushes under His feet every governing authority and everyone who ever stood against Almighty God, every principality and power, the evil one himself, and having brought every rule and authority under His reign, Jesus turns and hands the kingdom to the Father. Christ hands it to the Father. Because it is the Father who owns the kingdom and caused and made possible His Son to redeem them. Here in the arms of Christ. You and me and each one who ever placed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those that you ever loved who died in Jesus. So Christ brings this world of chaos and sadness and grief and pain into cosmic order. And Christ reigns. Because Jesus reigns, your resurrection is guaranteed. God's economy provides certainty. There is cosmic order. There's also cosmic reason. It was essential that God should raise Jesus from the dead for this reason. As I read through these last verses, probably a lot of you had trouble following along with the pronouns that he used. So I'm going to insert Jesus or God to help smooth it out for you. Verse 25, For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Adam sinned, all of us died spiritually. But he also sealed for the human race a, a guaranteed bodily death. And death stings. It is, it is a constant sting throughout our lives. I went to see Bobby just after he'd been diagnosed with a rare kidney disease. His prognosis was fatal, and so I kind of expected a pretty heavy conversation. Bobby looked at me and he said, Eric, I, I don't know if I feel a lot different today than I did before the diagnosis. I mean, my condition's fatal, and so is yours. I mean, I'm, I'm terminal, and so are you, Eric. And he's right. We grit our teeth as we face death. We grit our teeth when we watch our loved ones face death. Because the sting is a real sting. And it strikes hard. Death is only a sting. And it's only a sting because Jesus reigns. And Jesus refuses to let death have any voice beyond the grave. In other words, when you die in Christ, it's the last time death has any power over you. This is the reason that God allows His enemies to prosper for just a moment. Because God gets glory by conquering His enemy, the evil one. And then He gets glory by taking all of the instruments or implements that the evil one ever wielded against His people. 
those implements that dog us in this life, they are suddenly crushed under the weight of Jesus' reign. Look at verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that God is accepted, who put all things in subjection under Jesus. When all things are subjected to the Father, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the Father, who put all things in subjection under Christ, that God may be all in all. That's, that's a Paul term, that all in all. And it means that the eternal Trinity reigns supreme. In the end, all things flow from Him and all things return to Him. And the entire cosmos will glorify God as He made it to be. As He redeemed it to be. Which is what Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six: For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Christ arose, therefore He is King. Let's pray.